Welcome to the Highland Good Food Podcast. It's Fuggo King here. Happy New Year. And this time I'm going to be investigating what a farmer cluster is because like many of you, I didn't really know the term. But going back to 2023, uh, Highland Good Food had an opportunity to get some funding from Sustain. It was the Food for the Planet campaign and it enabled them to bring together a really interesting report that most of you probably haven't come across. However, you can go on to Highland Good Food Partnership website and you can find under the resources heading, you can find more information there. In the meantime, I'm going to meet up with people who have first-hand experience of what a farmer cluster is. Firstly, I'm chatting to Fiona Torrance, She's based in Fife and she has a long-term involvement in pharma clusters, which she'll tell you about. I'm very happy to have Fiona Torrance come and have a chat with me. And our subject is farm clusters. That's where we're starting. But actually, Fiona, it would be nice to give you an opportunity just to say hello yourself and perhaps tell some of the people listening why I've asked to, to have a chat with you. Sure. So yeah, I'm Fiona and I'm the Farm and Biodiversity Advisor at the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. My role primarily or initially I started working on a European funded project called Partridge, uh, which aimed to demonstrate how you can increase farmland biodiversity by improving agri-environment schemes. Now, unfortunately, that project came to an end. But we're using what we learned during that previous project to, to set up a new project. So as a farm and biodiversity advisor, I run a project with a specific pharma cluster, but I'm also involved in helping other pharma clusters that are already set up in Scotland and helping other ones get off the ground. Great. That's a really good introduction. I guess my next question or a question would be both for myself and again for other listeners who might not really know what a pharma cluster is. Yeah. Could you just give a very brief outline? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So a pharma cluster is a group of farmers who work together generally for the benefit of conservation on a landscape scale. So the key thing with these is that they're run by the farmers themselves. It's a key part of this approach is that it is bottom up and then it's led from the farmers. So they work together and they think about what sort of things that they would like to do for the environment. So if they've got a particular species that they'd like to target or a particular type of habitat that they want to introduce, they can all work together and all do these sort of things at the same time. And scientific research has shown that when you do work on a landscape scale approach, it generally has better success rates in terms of farm and biodiversity. Okay, so I, I would understand by landscape scale to mean that across all the farms, so you're not drawing a line at one boundary and saying, no, you have to do this differently, or so they talk to each other. That's right. Wildlife and the environment is very rarely works on boundaries, and so it's important that you try and incorporate as much of the landscape as you can. So you mentioned partridges in particular, which was a focus that you've been heavily involved in. Yes. What sort of other examples are there perhaps with other farmer clusters? Mm -hmm. Like I said, it very much depends on what the farmers want to do themselves. And the partridge is a really good one for arable farmland because it's an indicator species. An indicator species basically means that by looking at partridges, you can get a good idea of how healthy your farmland environment is. And it also means that measures that you put in for partridges tend to benefit for other farmland wildlife too. Mm. So for arable context, they're a great example, but other examples would be things like breeding birds or butterflies. Some farmers look at um, harvest mice. So it's mostly animal related, perhaps? Yeah, it doesn't have to be. It could also be plants as well. I've got a cluster that's actually specifically orientated on the water aspect of the area, um, the Loon and Burn cluster, and um, they're looking at their water quality. Um, so it very much varies depending on the local area and what the farmers want to do. Excellent. Now, it's good to hear this bottom up idea because I'm not a farmer. But hearing often tales of government imposed restrictions or targets, mm. it must be very difficult to know what's the next thing that's going to come along. So, so this seems like it's more led by individual groups or, or smaller scale. 
That's right, yeah. It's always led by the farmers themselves and there will always be a facilitator within the group, the expert as such. So that's the person that will make specific recommendations, do the surveys, um, organise events, apply for funding from elsewhere because um, these don't run for free, unfortunately. But yeah, it's generally run by the farmers themselves, which we find is a better model when it comes to their success. So you mentioned the word facilitator there. I mean, that sounds like quite a lot of work. Is that a paid job or how does that work out? So it very much depends on the funding model that you have. Uh. So the cluster that I work with, we're actually paid by a private company to run this cluster. There's other sources of funding, like in England where clusters took off, there's actually specific funding for facilitation, which is really helpful. Um, but unfortunately in Scotland, this isn't available as of yet. So it's a bit more of a challenge up here to get things off the ground. But there are some avenues, so um, like I said, private finance or applying to uh, specific grants from NatureScot or self-funding is what some of the clusters do as well. Okay, yeah, so it's got to be quite a dedicated group of people who are, who are keen to do this. Yes, you definitely need to be motivated to do a job like this. Yeah. Would you hope that there might be funding in the future within Scotland? It's certainly something that the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust are striving for. Pharmacost has been running in England since 2012. There's over 100 of them now across the UK and probably about 450,000 hectares covered within clusters. So they've been a massive success, particularly in England. And yeah, unfortunately, it's just that funding is the main barrier, I think, for getting pharma clusters off the ground in Scotland. The Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust have been working for a number of years now to try and influence government policy. And they are beginning to listen and they're hopefully will um, change their minds in the next couple of years. We've obviously got the agriculture bill that's just going through Parliament at the moment. So we hope that when the secondary legislation is introduced, that facilitation funding might come up. It could be a more cost effective way for the government to give funding on a landscape scale approach rather than focusing on lots of little projects. But yeah, it's a very much a case of wait and see at the moment, I'm afraid. There's quite a lot of wait and see about the new bills coming. Yes, yes. What I would love to know is what was the inspiration for the pharma cluster that you're specifically involved in where you live and work? Yep. So that project kind of took off as a result of the Partridge project, which I mentioned earlier. We've been using a farm called Balgoni, which is near Glenrothes, as one of the demonstration sites for that project. And it ran from 2016 to 2023. And as part of that project, we introduced these high quality habitats to try and get that increase in biodiversity that I mentioned. And they were really successful. Up until this year, we managed to increase our partridges by 320% since 2014, when we started working at Balgoni. We've increased the number of red listed birds, such as linnets and whitethroats. And we've also seen increases in some invertebrate species as well. And we were really keen to make sure that that work that we were doing as part of the Partridge Project didn't just stop overnight, which would have been an absolute shame because we managed to establish about 12 hectares of high quality habitat at Balgoni and the project was paying for it. And we were really keen that that continued. And so we mentioned this to PepsiCo and they were interested and we came up with a proposal for them. And so this proposal was basically taking that approach that we learned during the Partridge Project and seeing if we could scale it up across these other farms. Now, this cluster is slightly different from a normal cluster in that they're actually not geographically linked. They're quite spread out um, across Fife and Angus. However, there are other benefits to that. All the farms are quite different from each other. So you can trial different things in these different areas and see if they do actually still work. And you still get the same other benefits from a cluster. So we have regular meetings and the farmers can chat to each other and learn from each other. I often learn from the farmers myself, so I, I know not very much about farming, so it's definitely a two-way process. Yeah, we're taking that approach, seeing if we can scale up the Partridge Project's methodology, and then this is funded initially for two years, and we hope that by the end of next year that we will be able to develop a framework which will be able to spread out across Scotland to show that it can be rolled out elsewhere. Well, that seems like a perfectly sensible way of going about things. Yes. A lot of people need to see things working on the ground to believe it, so to speak. So that's what we're trying to do. Yes. And to see that it's worth putting that time and effort in and also that networking element that's very important. Yes. Definitely. As you say, the farms you've been working with are not geographically adjacent, but mm -hmm. 
they're going to have a lot of similarities, a lot of shared knowledge. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm sure within the farming community this happens. It's not as if this is they're being told, oh, you've never done this before. You must do this now. That's not the intention, I'm I'm quite sure. No, no, it's I'm very keen that this project is not about me dictating what I want them to do. It's about working with the farmers and coming up with things that are actually practical for them. So, for example, if I'm not going to tell them all to put in measures for partridges. I obviously love partridges, but I'm not going to tell them to put in measures for partridges if they don't want to. If they want to put in something for corn buntings or a specific type of butterfly or something like that, I'd be very happy to work with them. There's obviously some practical things to consider. So if they said to me that they want to put in measures for, I don't know, a corn creek or something, that's obviously totally inappropriate. And I would mention that to them and try and convince them for something else. But yeah, it's very much working with the farmers to find things that are going to work for their farm. Yeah. I mean, I know what a corn creek is, but I'm guessing quite a few people might say, why not a corn creek? <laughs> yeah, um, unfortunately, corn creeks aren't found in eastern Scotland. Um, they're only found in a few pockets in the, the Western Isles, so um, not feasible, unfortunately. Yeah, so there's got to be an element of local knowledge involved in this process. Yeah, well, that sounds great. Yeah, I think it would be great to hear some of your perspective on how these clusters can move forwards within Scotland. You've already said that this has been a long-standing arrangement in England and that there are many, well, over 100 farmer clusters and there are large areas of land. And, and yet it's still something that I suspect most people just haven't heard of. Yeah, I think a lot of people have heard of the approach, but unfortunately the main barrier to starting them up is this funding, which I mentioned about earlier. Apart from that, I guess the main barriers would be the slight uncertainty that we have at the moment with the agriculture bill. A lot of farmers are, well, every farmer is probably less than a crop rotation away from this bill coming in in 2025. And so a lot of people are concerned about the, the timing of these things. And then I think finally, the last thing is just providing a little bit more support for the ones that are managing to get off the ground themselves. So we're trying to work with other partners like GHI, to try and help clusters set up monitoring schemes and things themselves. The Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust hope to run some events for clusters like webinars and things to get people interested and help inform people about different management strategies and case studies that other people have done. But yeah, there's definitely the potential there, I think. We've now got super clusters forming where pharma clusters join together and form a larger area. Wow. And we're now moving on to the next step in um, environmental farmer groups, which are areas of tens of thousands of hectares. And they're basically clusters that have set up their own formal companies with the intention of trading natural capital in the future. Now, natural capital is another thing which is a little bit far behind in Scotland at the moment. But yeah, these things are getting off the ground. So we hope to replicate that across Scotland as well. Yeah, getting complicated. And I have read a little bit about one or two places in England where I can see that they're putting in 10 year plans and 15, 20 year plans. Mm. Not that a farmer doesn't do that, but with specific aims of working as a cluster and over larger areas and for biodiversity. So there are a lot of people obviously very keen to take this forwards. Definitely. What's been your favourite thing about getting involved in this whole process? So yeah, I hadn't heard of pharma clusters before I started here in uh, 2017. I was first introduced to them when I attended a talk by my colleague um, Pete Thompson, who came up with a cluster concept in England in 2012. And he was basically saying like what a pharma cluster is and how it works, etc. But all these benefits that come out of clusters. So From my point of view, there's obviously the landscape scale benefit, but there's also benefits for the farmers and that they get to work together. Some clusters form relationships with the other farmers in the area and they're now collectively chipping in to buy fancy pieces of equipment that they might need or they're recommending each other's businesses to each other. So there's definitely benefits outside the conservation sector. And I think a lot of people are just realising that and it's a really exciting time to get into this there's lots of chat just now about natural capital and biodiversity credits and things like that. And it's going to be important going forward. People are going to have to start thinking about it. So it's a really exciting time to be in the sector. And I just actually love working with the farmers. Um, the farmers that are in my particular cluster are all really enthusiastic about what we want to do. There's obviously practicalities with 
the way that they farm or agri-environment schemes or whatever it is. But it's really satisfying to work with them and overcome all these challenges that we have. And that's something which I found really fulfilling. Oh, thank you. That That's very inspiring. Thanks again to Fiona. And I'm going to move north now and meet up with Kat Sharp, who's, well, quite near to Loch Ness, but she'll tell you a bit more about what she's been up to. So on a dark evening here in the north of Scotland, I'm going to have a chat with Kat Sharp, and she is currently a facilitator for the Glenacket Farmer Cluster. So thanks first for agreeing to have a chat with me, Kat. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, to start with, I'd love to know where you are. I mean, I know the name Glenacket, but what sort of are you high up, low down? What sort of farm is it that you're on? So I have a little farm on one of the hills above Glenacket in Abriachan. The farmer cluster sort of operates in Glenacket and Strathglass, so it's sort of in and around Drumna Drocket, which is just on the shores of Loch Ness and where the mouths of two rivers are. And then it sort of goes up the glen um, and then sort of turns the corner and goes up Strathglass as well. And we've, the farms are sort of dotted along there. Most of us are at least halfway up the hill, I'd say. Actually, there's a couple of people that are more down at the sort of river level, but most of us are more sort of on the hill ground or at least with access to hill grazing. Most of us have livestock farms. There's one member who grows blueberries as well. And then there's a couple of us that are also fibre farmers, so growing wool from our sheep. Not much arable ground and no vegetable growing, unfortunately. (laughs) That's very understandable considering where you are. Um, Yeah, most people listening will probably have heard of certainly Loch Ness and maybe Drumna Drocket. So people have an image of that area of the world already. Mm -hmm. So if you're facilitator for this particular group, are they all adjacent farms or is there a travelling involved? We're sort of close, um, not adjacent. There's a couple of farms that um, are neighbours, but that is the exception rather than the rule. Because there's a lot of estate ground, a lot of Woodland Trust ground, a lot of Forestry Land Scotland ground in the Glen, actually where the farms are is more disjointed than you might think. I'm not even technically in Glenurka, I am slightly over the boundary, but because I am almost in it and the West Loch Ness cluster that formed first had sort of already gotten going without me, um, I was allowed to join the Glenurka one instead. (laughs) So I am a bit further away from everybody than everybody else is to each other. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there is a bit of travelling, there's sort of 15 miles probably between people yeah what was the motivation for this particular cluster that you are involved in why did you all start what happened so it was originally a push from the trees for life project Afric highlands which is operating close by but their remit goes sort of out with their Dundragon estate, the rewilding estate that they look after. And it was to encourage sort of environmental farming techniques, not too far away, let's say, from their um, rewilding estate. And so Stephanie, who's the project manager for the Africa Islands, she called around a few of the local farmers and came out to visit a few. I met her first a few years ago. She came up to mine, which is Achpopoli. And then we had this sort of initial meeting a few years ago where we sort of talked about the possibility of having a farm cluster Fred was there, who's the West Ness Farm Cluster Facilitator, and he sort of talked a bit about what they were doing, about what the cluster was sort of for and about, the sort of involvement that people had. 
And we all thought, oh, yeah, like that sounds like a great plan. But nobody came forward to be the facilitator. So that was a sort of a bit of a stalemate for about a year, probably. We had a few more meetings, but then, yeah, when nobody else did, (laughs) I was really keen that the cluster happened, like, well, partly selfishly, because there's loads of things that I'd love to do here on my farm that I'm just not able to afford to do. I was able to afford to do a few things myself, but I sort of run out of money now to do the other things on my list. But also to sort of have that community coming together and working out like what we could, like what's going on around the Glen at large and what we can all do about it and together. And I think for me, I've only been in the area for five years So having a way and a reason to meet other farmers that are in the local area has been amazing. And because I did put myself forward to be facilitator and then we worked together to get funding so that that role was paid because I wouldn't have been able to do it as a volunteer. It's also meant that then I've been able to like go and see everybody on their farms and have a nosy round and see what's going on. And it's been so interesting and really brilliant. It's been fascinating to see how, even though a lot of us are doing things slightly differently, actually, you know, there's certain things that just happen on the ground because that's what the ground is and wants to be. And that's what's here and thrives here. The small group that has started the cluster are all really keen to implement nature-friendly farming practices and are sort of curious as to what they might be, sort of above what we've thought of ourselves already. And then we've also started down a sort of access to local food theme as well. I think that will become a bigger part of what we do as well. So, yeah, these sort of two branches that are working parallel to each other. Wow, fantastic. I mean, this is very much about community. It's about, as you say, another farmer cluster member has stepped in to encourage you to get started. And then there's been coordination in terms of funding or, you know, finding shared interests, but still being able to be very independent. That's kind of what it sounds like. So I wonder, you've said kind of two threads at the moment, Does that feel like that's a good direction to be going in? Is there a sort of long-term plan or is it very much, well, we're here now, let's see what happens? I definitely do feel a bit clueless and a bit like unsure of what we're doing a lot of the time, but we also do have a long-term plan. (laughs) So in the sort of the two threads, we have put in an expression of interest form to the Nature Restoration Fund to do a whole host of different activities across all of our farms. So that includes wetlands and pond creation, hedges, riparian tree planting, shelter belts, also some things to do with grazing management like electric fencing, wildflower seeds, no fence collars for cattle, and thinking about sort of if we're going to fence off burns and things replacing the water source for the livestock with like solar powered trucks and things we're hoping that that all progresses positively but we won't know for a few months and that would be incredible like we'd be able to do so much if that all went through and then in terms of the sort of local food thread we have been collecting some feedback from people in Glenerka about if they'd like to buy local food, how and what would they like to buy? And we are planning to have some sort of pilot farmer's market this side of Christmas, see how it goes, get some more feedback about things, and then hopefully start up a monthly market in Drumnadrocket, possibly Canic next year. But that is something that we would be seeking funding for to continue from um, Sorbus so we need to see how that goes it sounds like it hopefully is positive um, for that as well so yeah it would be sort of stepping up that connection not to just to other farmers but to 
potential customers and other people in the local community, not to just to tell them what we're doing on our farms, but also to feed people, which is what farmers love to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mentioned a restoration fund. Is that Nature Scott that does that? Yeah. Um, something else I've got a note about, which may have come through listening to a discussion had that you were involved in earlier in the year, was about renewable energy. Is that something involved in the cluster or the farm? So Sorvus is the, I, oh, I'm probably not going to explain this exactly right, but... Um, <laughs> Briefly is fine. So there are wind farms in Glenurkett and they have to give money to the community and the organisation that distributes the funds is Sorvus. So I am funded by renewables, um, but through the community organisation that manages the funds, like there is the potential for that to increase in the Glen, because I know there's a few more turbines being talked about and things. So there's that aspect of it. We've discussed different organisations that might want to donate to tree planting to sort of offset things. Yeah, well, you've mentioned Trees for Life. Yeah. You've mentioned the Woodland Trust. So there are quite a lot of organisations that very much want to encourage farms of all sizes to do this kind of thing. Yeah, at the cluster meetings, we've invited in sort of guests to do talks about their specialist subjects. So we've had Farming Water Scotland organisation talking about water quality on farms and how to help farmers sort of make that the best they can and we've had somebody from the Woodland Trust come in and talk about how we could work together and hopefully in the new year we'll get somebody from Forestry Land Scotland once we've had visits from the Woodland Croft officer to talk about their sort of grants and stuff that might be able to help us out as well. So we try and get input from different places and of course Trees for Life pretty much always have a presence at our meetings as well to help us out with funding and general advice. We've also, quite a few of the farms have had a biodiversity action plan done by local ecologists. So we're sort of trying to get as much help from other places as we can to sort of inform how we progress and make sure it's not just sort of our whims that we are taking us forward but that there's you know other people are like yes that would be great (laughs) (laughs) yeah so shared knowledge shared experience yeah as you say you've only been there five years it it can be a bit overwhelming at times but you don't have to do it alone that's yeah a repeated message I'm hearing with this farmer cluster idea and I'm sure it's how people farmed in the past you know there's no way say where I am down by the sea and the family here had a hundred acres maybe of a croft and I know from talking to old guys in the village who used to come up that you know when the time came everyone would just pile around and do what needed doing and then you wouldn't all have the expensive kit and machinery perhaps or just not enough bodies to do things so yeah so for yourself personally are there any exciting things that haven't been mentioned yet I guess one of the things that I'm really keen to implement at my place is sort of more of a like woodland pasture sort of system for my sheep. So a lot of the funding that I'm looking for is to create woodland pasture and sort of hedge alleys that will provide fodder and protection for my stock, but also sort of more of a traditional grazing system as well. Bunloit have a beautiful example of an old woodland pasture system there and all of the plants that are in the pasture underneath the trees and stuff so it's lovely being able to see what I want to do in its maturity and like what maybe in like I don't know 50 100 years it might become (laughs) it can come quicker than you think with tree planting we've planted a lot of trees and yeah it's a little woodland it's it happens within your lifetime definitely Mm. yeah I think a lot of this has been around woodland and trees And you've just put a log on the log burner. Is that an area that you would diversify into with the use of the woodland? Or is it more for the biodiversity that you're developing more woodland? I think every farm that wants to plant trees has a different reason for doing so. 
like there is one of the larger farms that is thinking about putting in more sort of plantation type woodland as a, a timber crop. Mm, I think most people it's more for shelter of livestock and like the repair and planting of, you know, cooling the water, slowing the flow, holding the soil together and things like that. But I think as there's more trees on farms, people will be less worried about cutting a few down. I think when you've only got a few, then they seem quite precious. But as soon as there's a few more, you're like, oh, yeah, like like I planted a little coppice area my first winter here. And now like some of them are pretty big. And yeah, I'm wondering when they'll be big enough to take my first crop. And then obviously then the coppice rotations will start. Yeah, I think there's different reasons. There is um, somebody that I need to go out and see next week is more of a forester. So she's been in touch about possibly joining in with the cluster, but we're saying she's a forester, not a farmer. But I was saying, you know, if we're all land managers and we've all got environmental aspirations, then why not? instead of planting trees it might be taking some trees out for different reasons Mm -hmm. yeah and you made a good point there about flood alleviation or soil structure we see this every winter now and in the summer with the localized and national flooding so yes it's it's all very important to think about I should probably say that our sort of focus as a farming cluster began with the water we decided that as a watershed, we are not all along the rivers, but most of us have little burns running through the land. And even if we don't, you know, everybody who manages land contributes to water quality in some way. And so that's sort of where we started talking about what we can do to cool the water, to slow it down, to spread the flow across the ground. Although there's other reasons for having things like wetlands and hedges and things like that it all contributes to improving the water quality in the glen and hopefully alleviating some of the more severe flooding that happens over time if we can hold it at the top of the hill a little bit longer so yeah that's quite a big part of what we're trying to achieve and that was one of the reasons we got the seep guys in to talk to us about water so that we could work out if there was things we could do that we just hadn't thought about yeah you had mentioned it briefly and I'm glad you've come back to it because that feels like a nice rounding off point as well I hope to come out and visit at some point that would be fantastic thank you very much Kat and best wishes you know as the season gets darker and we're all hopefully hibernating a bit and doing some knitting with your wool perhaps (laughs) yeah (laughs) That would be great. Oh, really good to talk to you. Thank you very much. It was great to chat to you. Having discussed water quality there, I'm going to move on and speak with Fred Swift, who is also looking at what can be done with the water quality on the farm. And this is going to be part of what he's going to explain to us. Yeah, my name's Fred Swift. I farm with my father and my wife at South Clunes Farm up in the Highlands of Scotland. We are a pretty traditional uplands operation. We've got a thousand sheep and about 70 uh, ling cattle that we run pretty extensively. We don't house anything in sheds. We try and keep everything outside. Let the sheep be sheep, as we say. Let the cows be cows. We don't like to mollycoddle them too much. We've also got a family of beavers on the farm. That's always quite interesting. That keeps us on our toes, lots going on. Uh, It's a pretty varied farm, as I said, mainly upland. But within that, there's a lot of improved pasture. But there's also about 40%, which is pretty rough grazing, woodland, boggy areas. And there's a loch, which the beavers call home. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. I've been here my whole life. But I came back more seriously six years ago to start managing alongside my father and then... uh, And my wife and I are now sort of starting to take over, which is great fun. There's uh, never a dull moment up on this farm. (laughs) Excellent. What interests me there as well is, as you say, you're moving in to help out with your dad and then gradually your generation is taking on the farm. Has your dad been there a long time as well? 
Yeah, he came and bought the farm in 1984. So he's had, you know, nearly 40 years running it on his own originally. And then as a farming business grew, he started taking on one and then two people full time. And so now we run it as a team of three, which is very exciting. And even more exciting than that is uh, the next generation has arrived. So we've got a, a young daughter who's arrived on the farm as well. So that puts everything into perspective for us, which is pretty cool when you're sort of thinking about how you're going to manage and how you found it, how you want to leave it. Fantastic. That feels like a nice continuity there, that even though practices might change and approaches might change, that it's really nice to feel that. I mean, I know where I am, the previous families were there from 1849 to the 1960s. I'm pretty sure I can't, I mean, obviously not just one generation. I can't continue that, but that sort of feeling of care for the land and living on the land feels like a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Although on the reverse of that, it does seem you need to be around for about 500 years before you're considered a native. So (laughs) we're still a bit bit away off that, but we're doing our best. As far as I understand, you have quite a large involvement in a particular farmer cluster. Yeah. Perhaps initially, how did you hear about farmer clusters in the more general sense? Yes. So we started the West Loch Ness Farm Cluster, which is based in this aired region, obviously sort of bound in by the Bewley Firth in the north and the and Loch Ness to the east. And we sit sort of just to the west of all of that incredibly varied terrain. There's about 20,000 hectares in the cluster, of which about 6,000 hectares are under member management. The farm cluster for us, it sort of started in about 2018, 2019. It was my father mainly who was the catalyst behind it all. He noticed since 1984 that the decline of, of waders really were the thing that he noticed changing on the farm as time went on, as practices changed, as farming techniques changed. And he sort of thought that was in isolation and that was something that was a South Queen's Farm problem. But through chatting to different boys and girls in the mart and around and about, you quite quickly realise that these things don't happen in isolation and it was just more of a landscape scale problem than you talk to your neighbours and you realise they've got the same thing. And it's very interesting because waders, ground nesting birds and waders, you know, for us, they were the, the canary in the coal mine, but they do seem to strike quite an amazing... Uh, Accord with a lot of people that that manage the land. You know, you hear them in the spring, and then you, if you're lucky enough, you find a nest, and you keep your fingers crossed, and hopefully see some juveniles in the in the summer months as well. And so, it was the decline in those for us? It was really curlew. That decline got us talking, and the neighbours started talking, saying, "Surely, how can we try and address this problem, which isn't just on individual farms, which affects the whole landscape, which affects us all together?" What vehicle, what platform is there for us to work together? And it was at that stage that we heard about farmer clusters. It was through the GWCT, Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, who initially conceived the idea and brought them to both governments up north and down south. And down south, they really liked the idea and they picked it up and they ran with it. So by 2020, when we were starting to have these conversations, there were about 100 farm clusters down south. And at that stage, there was only one in Scotland, the Strathmore Farmer Cluster, who did brilliant work setting up, you know, on their own without any local examples to follow. And so we we were in touch with them. We were in touch with the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. We were in touch with some clusters down south to work out how to do it and what's best to do. And then, of course, COVID struck. So (laughs) to everything, like all these brilliant projects that were on the tip of everyone's tongues, they fell apart unfortunately. So we were holed up for about six months or so before things started to open up. And we decided to form as the West Loch Ness Farm Cluster. Once we opened up, managed to get everyone in a room together. And the most important detail for us was that thing that you couldn't do during COVID was how do we get everyone together to get everyone talking? So what we said was, let's all join up, have a meeting, bring a farm map with you and a list of species that you used to see and you'd like to see more of. And let's see if we can combine those two features, one with the map and start talking about habitat creation, what what habitat is ideal for these species and and what species are on the list. Barn owl, brown hare, different types of orchids, greater butterfly orchid, lesser butterfly orchid, etc. Various butterflies themselves, wild bee populations, red squirrels, kingfishers, these sorts of things. What can we do with this species list that we put together? given that 
we've got maps of our own ground you know what can we do for this list with this area and we, t- we took that information to some local ecologists and we offered it up to them some fantastic people at Lockett Agri Environmental and we said you know this is our list this is our Christmas list if you will <laughs> and this is our ground what should we be focusing on to work together how can we be thinking at a landscape scale those were the first steps we went through to get things going. They then came back to us and said, Look, there's two key themes we really think you should focus on here. The first is uh, habitat connectivity. And the second is habitat creation in equal proportions. It's really interesting. It makes a lot of sense to me hearing you talk about this landscape scale and you're not working across, uh, you're not putting up imaginary boundaries. You're a seeing the much bigger picture and interestingly for me I suppose because I live in amongst a fair bit of wetland I've also noticed the decline in say lapwing nesting areas or skylarks luckily we still see a lot of but curlews yeah a lot less certainly around here so there's much more going on than just picking one thing Yes, I think you're completely right. You know, wildlife and biodiversity, they don't care much for march fences and for management and ownership boundaries. These are bigger problems across, you know, the more you talk about it, the more you realise this isn't even just in our area, up in the air, up in the highlands, with you much further north and all over Scotland and globally. You know, these conversations all need to be framed in the context of a climate and biodiversity crisis that we're in. What is your particular role within your pharma cluster? Do you have a job title or do you, how, how do you make it work? Uh, my job, I'm the facilitator. So I sit in the middle. So we brought everyone to the, to the table at the start. My father did that mainly. And then from then on, it's been my job as facilitator to try and keep the cogs moving, to try and find funding, to try and action some of these plans that the, that the ecologists drew up. And that's really the critical component of a farm cluster is who's going to sit in the middle and keep it moving forward, keep exploring different funding opportunities, keep exploring different uh, collaboration opportunities. And that's what I do. I do it alongside a fantastic project manager called Hannah Humphreys. And we work together. And at the moment, we're working on finishing up our second year of NRF funding. We've got funding from the Nature Restoration Fund from NatureScot. So that'll come to a close at the end of March 24. So we've been involved in that. This will be the end of our second year. Bigger grant applications, but right at the start, we got smaller smaller grants, a little bit of seed capital from amazing funders like Highlands and Islands Environmental Fund, HIEF. They're brilliant. And we got some funding as well from the Lund Fund. So just that's what we needed to get us going, to help us action our plans, to get us our mapping sorted. And then after that, we started putting in applications for bigger quantities of money away from the five, ten thousand pounds towards the 80, 90, 100,000 pound mark. And as a result, we've managed to do a lot of brilliant things. And we've seen a lot of ecological uplift and we're doing ongoing monitoring and surveying to track those changes over time. And it's been fantastic. One of the main things we've been focusing on has been uh, wetland creation. Slightly, I have to say, inspired by the beavers we've got here on the farm. We've had them on the farm here for 15 years and we've seen gradually the the amazing change they make and the, the habitat they create, the opportunities for various different types of wildlife. And so slightly inspired by that, there's a brilliant 50 hectare re-wetting program we've been doing on a, on a marshland down at the bottom of the hill from us here on the farm. And to see those changes over time has been fantastic. Yeah, it sounds very much like the inspiration that you've been gaining from seeing what's happening is something that you're very keen to share with other people, with other farms, perhaps with other organisations who can say, oh yeah, okay, beavers, they really can make a difference in a positive way, rather than being scared of changes that you don't fully understand. Also, yeah, hearing about what the funding opportunities are, because obviously they're quite broad and at times they need to be very much more specific. But hopefully some folk hearing this podcast or looking into the pharma cluster idea will feel inspired to take similar steps, you know, talk to their neighbours and continue in that way. Hopefully so. I have to say when it comes to funding application, it seems that you're always looked at more favourably 
coming from a collaborative point of view saying you know we're working hard together we're working with our neighbors yep farmers and working together is not always a traditional reputation <laughs> so it's, it's good to be able to buck that trend from time to time yeah and obviously that's as you say you're a facilitator and you have a manager those are very important roles within this to keep an eye on the ball and not let things kind of drift off I guess it's yeah that's a big part of it is keeping that momentum going so in terms of that how do you see this developing in your pharma cluster and then I'm also interested in how you see this developing further afield within the broader highlands and Scotland well for us our main plans to get to the end of this uh, nature restoration funding pot this grant we've been given and then we're probably going to be looking into taking on more members at the moment our pharma cluster has eight members farmers, crofters, estates, land managers, a a good variety, which is always important. And we said we wouldn't be looking to take on any more members until we've done our first cycle of grants to just get something done. A lot of people do a lot of talking in this sort of ecological recovery space. So it's exciting to be able to say, this is what we've done, do a bit of doing. So we're looking to expand into next year, which would be good. That's for us. And then wider in, in a Scottish Highland and Scottish context, There are now a few more pharma clusters starting, which is brilliant. I've been lucky enough to be given the opportunity to go and talk to prospective pharma clusters and also hosted an event here on the farm talking about what we've done. And there's definitely one pharma cluster that's come from that. And one on the Loon and Burn down in Perthshire. Uh, There's a pharma cluster developing north of Elgin on the the Lack of Moray. So they're generally more in the highlands, but they're starting to pop up. And I think it's a fantastic thing. You know, we've got to think big picture. Mm -hmm. We've got to show that farmers are part of the solution, not part of the problem. I don't like how farming seems to be the F word in conservation, but it's not, you know, without having land managers and uh, people on side. I don't understand how government targets are going to be reached and how uplift is going to be created. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. I think it's good to hear that you are able to go out and share some of the experiences and no doubt you also got inspiration from as you say the hundred or more across England yeah so again one of the reasons I'm talking to you and I know has affected you was that Highland Good Food Partnership did a report with help from very many people yourself included I think and the organization who gave you ecological assistance when you were planning so that report while it is technically a a sort of fairly dry piece of paper to look at it's also an important document to be able to show what is happening what can happen and and what will happen in the future and I know that there are documents and um, sort of inspiring reports about some of the areas down in the Chilterns uh, for example so there's a lot a lot of possibility to pick up on and move forwards with I guess maybe just to round up what we're talking about how about a, just a little fun thing that has happened whilst you've been getting involved in the clusters where there's some really unexpected things or uh, something daft that happened maybe that you want to share? Well, there's plenty of daft things happening on the farm every day around here. But um, <laughs> what's really been fantastic has been seeing how quickly nature responds to management changes and to habitat creation. If you create the habitat, the wildlife will very, very quickly find a way. You know, we've had otters that we've never seen otters before down on that uh, marshland we were talking about that's been rewetted. Last year, on Christmas Day last year, we recorded on a camera trap a bittern, which was about only about the 10th sighting of a bittern in the highlands for about the last 250 years or something like that. So it's amazing to see how quickly nature will respond to those that take action. Yeah, And it's amazing to see how... Funders seem to want to support those that will and those that are prepared to take the time. As that article produced by Highland Good Food said, you know, there's a lot of examples of clusters and collaborative works at landscape scale all over the world. It's a shame Scotland's so late to the party, but if we can get it up and running now and build a bit of momentum behind it, that would be a fantastic thing. Absolutely. That's very encouraging, very positive and Yeah, I think we do underestimate sometimes as humans how quickly other creatures will zoom in and find 
oh, this is just what we needed. And again, perhaps that connectivity is really important, the landscape scale, because, for example, where I live, although we've planted nearly two acres of small woodland and we've seen a change around us, it's just very rough grazing landscape and the nearest other similar piece of land is really quite far away so that idea of connecting up really seems to make a difference absolutely it all comes down to landscape scale projects and trying to get farmers and land managers to work together unfortunately there is that joke they say you know how do you get two farmers to work together you know build a plan to shaft the third one you know and (laughs) that's about the reputation and that's unfortunately the reality in some instances but we're showing that you know that's not always the case and it's very easy to work together and to see see results Mm -hmm. one of the difficult things at the moment as organizations like farm clusters and larger landscape scale recovery projects start to emerge the difficult thing is accessing funding, and that's always, always going to be difficult. You don't want the funding to come too easily. You need to make sure everyone's done all their homework and knows what they're doing. But uh, it would seem that the Scottish government's got an amazing opportunity with the overhaul of EECs and things like that, the uh, Agricultural and Environmental Climate Schemes, to upgrade that and to make these things credit farmers and land managers more for those services that we're offering, public money for public goods, yeah. out with meat and grain production which is very important. But um, as far as I'm concerned, it's our responsibility as farmers to be feeding our local community. I don't think we should take it on our shoulders to feed the world. That's how you create self-sustaining food systems. If you can rely on yourselves and anything out with that land that is more marginal, that is less agriculturally productive, I think should be credited for turning into something that's more ecologically productive. Yeah. Trying to increase the resilience. I think resilience is a big word in this conversation. Resilience, both ecologically and in terms of food security as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to say thank you and um, get back out there before it's dark, because <laughs> it will be soon. <laughs> I'll get my boots back on. I'll head out just now with my, with, with my spade. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. Thanks to everyone who's participated in this podcast. I feel like I've learned quite a lot and I've got some hopeful and exciting ideas. Really hearing about people working together, collaborative side of things, knowing that there are many farmers out there wanting to be part of a solution to work for resilience. In this climate and biodiversity crisis, there's a lot of opportunities at government level to listen to what's already going on around within the farmer cluster organisations and other farms too, of course. So if you want to look into any of this more, you can go and see the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust.org. There's also farmerclusters.com. And if you want to have a look at something in England that's going on, there's the Chilterns Landscape Partnership. They have quite a bit about farmer clusters in their area. Yeah, we'll see what happens with the agricultural bill. Bit of a waiting game, but there are a lot of good opportunities and it's been really interesting hearing about a lot of the work that's currently being done and how resilient nature is when we give it a chance. This podcast is funded by the Highland Good Food Partnership, recorded by me, Fuggo King, edited by Rachel Butterworth and the music was by Emma and Rachel Butterworth. Okay, thanks for listening.